Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's good to be here and hear the various thoughts that were given. Appreciate that. Thought the question, are you an extremist? I didn't put too much thought to it, but an extremist is someone you would think is really focused on one section or area or purpose, right? Of being extremist. And, and there are things like extremists where you, where people are overly focused on one area at the expense of other areas. So there are, there are real, there's a, extremists can be a very bad thing, definitely. And yet I think, yeah, let's look at it. We are, there's something like good extremists, let's say it that way. So depending who you compare us with, yeah, we definitely are extreme. And we'll, we'll uh, bring some more of that out. Not, not the extremist part, but uh, as, as I go through the message this morning, that I like to come clearer that there, that we are extremists and that, that it's a good thing. So, could you stand for a word of prayer? And let's pray before we begin the message. Lord, we're grateful to you. Whether or not the light of the world or the salt of the world, salt of the earth, whether that is extreme, Lord, We'll let other people decide, Lord, but we definitely, Lord, purpose to walk with you and to walk with you closely by you under your feathers, in your shadow and uh, protected by you. And Lord, whatever the outcome is, whatever people may call us, whatever that happens to be, Lord, we we accept that as your will and purpose, as we have read about, already sang about uh, bearing the cross this morning. So, Lord, we are just pray, Lord, you would be with us in this part of the service. Give us instruction, encourage us, and give us direction for the, the next week. Uh, build and, and mold our minds and our hearts, Lord, to be more like you and to be more effective in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seat it. <clears throat> this morning, we will return to Ephesians chapter 6 as we're looking at the armor. The armor of God. We have, and I tried to bring that out as we're going along here, that the devil is no joke. He is a real enemy. He is not a pussycat. He uh, he initiated that rebellion in heaven that failed. So he brought that rebellion onto the earth. And he's had remarkable, albeit temporal, success. And he's not done yet. Uh, I found an article 
titled The Biggest Lockdown is Still Coming. I thought it, it would fit here. So I'm going to read the article by David Cloud. He writes that lockdowns dominated the news for 2020, but the real big lockdown is in the future. Bible prophecy was fulfilled literally and precisely in the first coming of Christ, and it will be fulfilled in the same manner in his second coming. As a precursor, the Antichrist will lock down the whole world with his worship program and economic control scheme backed up by the death penalty. It will be a global North Korea. And here we have some verses out of Revelation. And he had, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond. Apparently we're not going to be all equal at the end. Is that right? We're looking towards, we're going towards a utopian of equality, but in God's word, we're not, we're not finding that. So everyone, rich and poor, free and bond, will receive a mark in their right hand or on their foreheads that no man may buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Revelation 13, 15 to 17. Then he goes on to say here, the COVID pandemic is child's play compared with the trouble that looms on the horizon. Billions of people will die during the great tribulation from wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, and totalitarianism on a scale that will make Stalin and Mao seem like choir boys. It is all described in the book of Revelation for those who are interested. It's called the day of the Lord because it will spell doom for the day of man. And the reason I, the reason I read that in context this morning is I just want us to understand that the devil, this battle is real and it's not over and it's going to intensify rather than get better. And it will be, it's real now and it will be more real in the future. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, we will read starting at verse 10 again. And we'll read that section, then we'll get one portion out of it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take upon you, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. 
And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So we understand that we may be able to stand. We may be able to stand against what we what we read about there, about the totalitarianism and all that. We may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We are commanded to be strong in the Lord. And we are instructed to put on the armor of God, the whole armor of God, everything, every piece. And the last time we looked at being girded with the truth, with truth, uh, that belt of truth. The, the truth of the word properly balanced. The truth of honesty and integrity rather than hypocrisy, which we heard about this morning already. Truth in our speech rather than gossip and slander and exaggeration and flattery. This belt of truth is an essential, even a foundational. It's a foundational part of our armor, since it's the part in the middle that sort of holds other things together. Put it on and don't take that off. Now today, we will look at the other piece of armor, which is the shield or the breastplate of righteousness. That's the title, the um, our shield of righteousness. Maybe that's the wrong title. I just uh, just see that, right? It's called about a breastplate. We actually have a shield. I guess the change, our breastplate of righteousness changed that title there. So, as the soldier puts on his armor, and remember, we don't put armor on when we're going to the park, or we're going to go shopping, we don't put armor on, we put armor on when we are in a dangerous situation, or ready to go into a dangerous situation. And so, as a soldier, as he puts on his armor, one of the things he puts on is a breastplate From the words of Dave, Dave Johnson, he said soldiers of that time had another piece of protective armor to ward off enemy blows. That was the shield. So you have people who had a shield. But during the heat of battle, those blows could come from unexpected directions or there could be too many to ward off with just a shield. So the breastplate provided protection against the unexpected and against overwhelming numbers. And that breastplate that was worn by Roman soldiers was generally made of iron, though some wealthier soldiers might have had a, a shield of, or a breastplate of bronze. The overlapping pieces allowed for flexibility of movement, and the piece of armor protected the vital organs of the soldier during battle. The modern Equivalent of that would be a bulletproof vest that law enforcement often puts on when they go into a dangerous situation to protect. Adam Clark says the following, as the breastplate defends the heart and lungs and all those vital functionaries, 
that are contained in what is called the region of the thorax. So this righteousness defends everything in which a man's spiritual existence depends. Now he goes from the illustration to the to the actually to the actually example, the object. So the soldier's breastplate, his body armor is only the illustration. Righteousness is actually the object. It's what every Christian is to put on and not take off. Put on the armor of God, put on the righteousness of God. Now, so when Satan, we're going to use modern language, language we all understand. So when Satan organizes a riot against you or against either as an individual or as a group, you need some protection. We need to have this righteousness on when there's attacks come from the enemy. Our personal uh, vulnerability is, is greatly increased without this righteousness. And in fact, if I don't have the righteousness on, I'm a hindrance to the team rather than an asset. And in the long run, I will not be able to stand without righteousness on. We will eventually succumb to the devil's assaults and we will let down the people of God who are to some degree more or less depending on us. And we have recent examples of that as well. So, what is this righteousness that we put on? Righteousness, dictionary definition, is simply, well, not exactly mine's, it's the character or quality of being right or just. It was formally spelled right wiseness, which actually brings the full meaning of it. Righteousness is right wiseness. If you remember, in the last message, we looked at truth. And I said truth is a number of different meanings, but in its essential nature, truth is reality. Truth is what's real. It's what is. It's what is fact. It's what's actual. It's what's true. That's what truth is. Now, righteousness is essentially the same thing except in the ethical realm. Just transfer truth, reality, actuality, and you put righteousness in the ethical realm. What's right and wrong? Your action, your attitude or action is righteous if it aligns or conforms with what is morally right. What is proper? If it has the correct principle. Anything that does not align or conform to what is right is unrighteous. There are some synonyms for righteousness, and it's someone who is moral, who is virtuous, who is honorable, who is blameless, who is upright. Those are other synonyms for righteousness. So I, you can turn to Matthew 5. There's a number of verses about righteousness, and uh, what, I, what I basically did 
as I was studying this, I, I took my concordance and found what righteousness is, and I found everything I needed in Matthew chapter 5. There's uh, enough there. But righteousness is is all throughout the New Testament, actually the Old Testament as well. Matthew chapter 5, we'll read in verse 6 there. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Excuse me. Here we see righteousness as a pursuit. It's something to gain. It's something to acquire. And the promise here is that those who pursue it will possess it. Down in verse 10. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So when a person is virtuous, when he's honorable, when he's blameless and upright, but he's treated badly because of that, that person receives a blessing from God. Down to verse 20. For say I say unto you, except your righteousness so exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Here we have the premier religious people of the day who lacked this basic quality of right wiseness. Amazing, isn't it? The premier religious folks did not have this right wiseness. They, their lives did not conform to what is morally right. And they will be excluded from God's kingdom. They were not a part of it then, and they will not be a part of it in the future without major change. And then we'll go to Matthew chapter 6. And I just discovered this. We actually went through this in family devotion recently. I think I had known it before, but I had forgotten it. But in chapter 6 and verse 1, take heed that you do not your alms. Now, you know what that word alms is? (laughs) It's the same word, righteousness. Basically saying, don't do your righteousness before men to be seen of them. Don't perf- people were performing, they were performing virtuous and honorable and blameless and upright deeds. That's what they were doing. They were doing right things. They were doing righteousness in the streets. They were doing it in the public eye. But they still lacked true righteousness. Jesus calls them hypocrites, play actors, performers. They were not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They were hungering and thirsting for public status and praise. And the two are opposites. They were seeking acclaim and applause from their peers. And I'll just read there, and you're very familiar with it. Thou, when thou doest thine 
righteousness. That, that righteousness is actually now not in the original. It's just simply put it in there to make it readable. But it's, it's implied. Thou do thine righteousness. Don't sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have the glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest your righteous deeds, let not the left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thy righteous deeds may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall himself shall reward thee openly. Righteousness. I think we have established a little bit of the essential nature of it. And we have determined that it is absolutely essential. The Pharisees won't, didn't have it, and they didn't make the cut. There must be a righteousness, but it must exceed that kind of righteousness. So it's essential, and it's not optional. Not only will we succumb to the devil without it, but we will be be rejected by God if we lack it. So religion and performance doesn't cut it either. So now we have some questions we need to ask. Some people say, rightfully, right, that we are not righteous. We are not blameless. In fact, all of our righteousness is as a filthy, unclean rag. And this is, this is the, what comes out. The only righteousness we have is the righteousness that Jesus gives us by virtue of us believing on him. And when we become a Christian, Jesus takes away our sins and he gives us his righteousness. And what we put on then in this case here is not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. So when we put on the armor, we put on the righteousness of Christ because it is the armor of God and it's, the, it's God's righteousness. And so we put that on. This is a question we're asking. OK, we're going we're going down an argument. So what is in view here as we think of the armor? Is it the legal declared imputed perfect righteousness from Christ or is it the righteous Attitudes and actions of the individual believer. And like I said already, some argue that since the armor is from God, it's God's armor we put on. It follows that the righteousness of God that we put on. So it's not our righteousness that will protect us from the devil. Since our righteousness is inconsistent and sporadic and not perfect. Even our best thoughts and deeds are tainted. So it's Christ's righteousness. What do you think? Is that what the armor is? Is it the righteousness of Christ or is it your righteousness, your righteous deeds? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a setup. It's not an, it's not an either or question it's an and both question that is right <laughs> and i will spend the rest of the message unpacking this point first is the righteousness of christ when i was 12 years old i was in 7th grade in school and i was unrighteous i um there was a 
certain family that most of the school students picked on, and I entered into that. That was not a good thing. I said had some language that I knew I should not have used. I had some thoughts that I knew were wrong and understood them to be sinful and other things. And I felt guilty. And I didn't want I did not want to actually be that way. I did actually not well, I wanted to relieve that guilt, probably the main emphasis I believe, as I look back. So I made a specific conscious choice that I'm going to change. But I'm not going to change during the school year because you get every morning, you know, you go to school and you're around your peers. Uh, that's too much. I'm going to wait till school ends. And then I'm going to change. I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop it. And by the time the school year ends, I'll have been in a new habit and I'll be a different person. I mean, that was clear. It was clear in my mind, and I was a real purpose in my heart. And how do you think that worked out? Did not work out. Um, I didn't realize or acknowledge that my problem was much, much deeper than the action that I was doing. I was actually a card-bearing member of the rebel kingdom. I didn't have a card, but basically you know what I mean by a card-bearing member. I was a member of Satan's kingdom. I was his subject. In fact, I was in bondage, and I was not, he was not going to let me go, and I couldn't get free. I was estranged from God, which is the source of righteousness. In the words of Ephesians, I was walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, walking according to the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. I was walking in that spirit and was by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. Now, the reason he uh, Paul says there we were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind, he was talking about the Jews, um, the Gentiles, they were walking according to the course of this world. But, but the Jews also had the same problem as the Gentiles. And so that was me, born in a Christian home. I had the same problem as the rest of the world. I was by nature the child of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. So I needed something more than trying to do right deeds. Now, a very common answer in modern times is what Denny Kennison participated in when he went to Bible school. And he went to Bible school there in Indiana, and I read about that school since. And it was notorious for this very thing. In fact, this was one of its main emphasis. So Denny, Denny, was, Denny was falling in line what the school taught. They had to go witnessing at least at least every other week, maybe every week, but at least every other week. So what they did is they got a busload of students from the school, and they went to an urban area, and they went out, and they talked to people. And they witnessed, and they were taught how to win people to the Lord. And repentance was missing. 
what you got to do is people agree that they were sinners and then just pray this prayer and then they're saved. And then they came back and they talked about how many people they talked to and how many people they led to the Lord. And it was a lot of people, five, eight, ten. I led ten people to the Lord today. And the next week, the same thing. And Danny, he was also a Bible student, not just a Bible school student. (laughs) That's good. Hey, it's good for you to be a student of your leaders, and it's good for you to be a student of your parents and whatever, but also be a Bible student. That's good. He was also a Bible student, and he began to think, what is happening to those people? That we, that are being led to the Lord, that He was leading to the Lord. And hardly, hardly any of them would get baptized. Hardly any of them would come to church. And hardly any of them had any difference in their lives. And He said, something is wrong here. So, He actually understood that there needs to be a repentance and a surrender and a discipleship, and he gained that, and he began to do that, and his numbers of people he wanted to the Lord went way down. In fact, it went down to zero, zero, one, zero, zero, so on. He didn't win many to the Lord, but the ones he won to the Lord, they got baptized, and they came to church. They actually had a much better response but what he was being taught in Bible school was a once saved always saved version of Christianity and this is and this is basically what he was taught that Jesus was the perfect son of God who never sinned remember we're looking for an answer to my dilemma what was what was I needed to do there Jesus was the perfect son of God who never sinned. When he died on the cross, he took the world's sin upon himself. He paid for mankind's sin. They are not paid for. Your sins are paid for. The basic condition for anyone to be saved is to acknowledge they are a sinner and accept Jesus into their heart. Salvation is entirely by faith in Jesus. When anyone did that, when someone did that, anyone did that, a transaction occurred in heaven and that person's sins were put on Jesus and Jesus' perfect righteousness was put on the sinner. And now that person is perfectly righteous, justified, just as if he had never sinned. And if you add the one saved, always saved to that, you can see that each one of those who said the little prayer possessed the righteousness of Christ. So to the school, in their theology, it didn't matter that much whether someone actually came through and followed they were now saved because they believed in Jesus in a once-time thing. Now, there are many variations of this. I, I hear testimonies still of today uh, out there. That I, 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 as a child at 5 or 7 or 9 or 12, I became a Christian. Then during my teenage years, I was rebellious and I did a bunch of things I shouldn't have done, but... Now, whatever, they're talking in their 20s or 30s or later in life. They say, but I always knew I was a Christian. That's a variation of that. Another common way of explaining that is by some very popular preachers today 
is there is a divide between Christians and disciples. Everyone who says this prayer is a Christian. But what God really wants is disciples or followers of Jesus. So Christians have the righteousness of Christ in their account, but disciples actually begin to walk in that righteousness, in obedience. That is a way to describe. I know John D. Martin described the difference really between a savings account and a checking account. So, okay, you have righteousness, but it's in a savings account. It's no good to you. It gotta be a, you gotta be actually able to use it. It gotta have a checking account. But here, here is a weakness. It is a weakness in the courtroom illustration that we sometimes use to describe salvation. So you have done something wrong. You have sinned in, in God's courtroom. You're, you have sinned and you're brought into God's courtroom and the penalty for sin is death. So you are brought in and they look at you and it's clearly you're guilty. So you're given the sentence. It's death. And but before you're taken out of the courtroom, Jesus steps into your place and he takes your place and you go free. That's the courtroom description of salvation. He bears your punishment. Uh, Jesus steps in. It's accepted. He bears your punishment and you go free. Now, one of the problems with this illustration is it allows justification to be separated from sanctification. So long as a person believes that Jesus died as their substitute, they're off the hook. How they actually live is not central to this legal arrangement. So, in this case, often the primary purpose of the cross is its instant cast value for the individual. By praying the prayer, I'm immediately removed from the wrong side of God and I'm put on the right side of God's ledger. It's a transaction that's done. What's more, since I'm no longer guilty, my eternal destiny is guaranteed. This perspective offers instant forgiveness without challenging basic day-to-day moral behavior. It separates salvation from discipleship by disconnecting the way that Jesus lived in his life from his saving work. And given this view, it's hardly surprising that there are millions of people in America who profess faith in Jesus, but their lives are basically indistinguishable from their pagan neighbors. A much better illustration, and again, we're, we're actually looking at the many different theories of atonement, and, and, and I have come to the place where one theory doesn't, it, 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 one theory doesn't, doesn't do justice to the full scope of God's salvation. It's, it's huge, and I haven't all figured it out yet. But a, a better illustration of this salvation, of what Christ did, is that the battle for your soul was not won in the courtroom, but it was won on the battlefield. The world entered into rebellion with Satan and against God when Adam and Eve rejected God. And that's why John says in 1 John, 
Well, there's a number. Yeah, okay, I have a First John 5:19b. I'll just read it just a part of a verse. And I'm going to read it in several different translations. John says, the whole world lieth in wickedness. That's his analysis. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world around us is under the control of the evil one. And I don't think any of us would argue with that one, do we? So when Jesus came, he did not first preach about salvation. What did he preach? He preached about the kingdom. A kingdom, a coming kingdom, a kingdom of God. And he said, this promised kingdom is now coming and it's here. The kingdom of God is near, it's present, it's here among you. And the disciples were sent out two by two to preach. Now I wonder, I I, I sort of just thought of, they didn't understand the kingdom at that point. I wonder what their preaching sounded like. You're preaching a kingdom that you don't have a grasp on. I, I don't know what it looked like, but they had the power of the kingdom. They could heal. They, 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 had, they had some, but it could have been interesting to hear them. Because at that point, they did not understand the nature of this kingdom. So the battle for your soul can be illustrated as being won on the battlefield. Satan effectively won the world for himself. After he failed in heaven, he came to earth and he effectively. And I, 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 we, you have to nuance that. And I'm going to do that right now. God is the ultimate Lord over all creation. No argument. But Satan is the functioning Lord at this present time. Talking about humanity. God is the ultimate Lord, not just over humanity, but over all creation. But as far as the functioning Lord, Satan has it. He is the God of this world, and everyone is by default born into his realm, because all have sinned. Then Christ came as the second Adam into this world. God himself came down physically into the devil's kingdom. Can you imagine his consternation? God himself. Remember, Satan's thrown out of heaven because he failed up there. Now God himself comes down to here. That's not good. And what the first thing he did, he tried to destroy him. And that's a baby. Satan did not like the Lord Jesus Christ here on the earth. It was an intrusion into his kingdom. And of course, as soon as Jesus began his public ministry, those attacks of Satan were intense. As you say, they were consistent. I, I don't know what they were. He, he left for time for a more opportune time. So they were, he was, well, there you have it. He left after those temptations in the wilderness. He failed and he left. He left off the temptation, but he was waiting for another time. He had the wiles of the devil. He was watching. And so there was a lot of opposition in Jesus' life. Much opposition. Jesus just takes, soaks up everything that Satan can throw at him. But he will not submit to Satan. 
he will not yield. He is in Satan's realm, but he remains true to his heavenly constitution. He's even tempted in the garden like Eve was tempted, but he did not succumb. And in the end, in the end, he goes to the death without succumbing to the enemy. And in that, in that act, and this is part of the atonement, it's only part of it. In that act, Satan was defeated. The second Adam, the work, the, um, the, the kingdom the, the rebel kingdom on earth was established at that point. It was, uh, not established, it was inaugurated, I guess you can use that word. <laughs> it was inaugurated at that point. Satan and evil and death itself is defeated by the victorious, sinless, unconquered death of Jesus on the cross. And then Jesus rose again after having finished the work that God gave him. And he established his kingdom on earth to do the same thing as he has done. So we can view Jesus as a pioneer. Jesus fought and he acquired like a beachhead in enemy territory. And now he calls and leads a people to follow his lead, to walk as he walked, to do as he did. A people in enemy territory, a kingdom. So he asked the people to live in the realm of the devil and to absolutely resist the devil as we ascribe our allegiance to the heavenly constitution. We are called to be exactly like Jesus. Jesus did not set up his kingdom by chasing the devil away, but by forging a way through the devil's territory so we can follow him through it as well. That's the kingdom of God on earth like we uh like we uh, had in devotion just last evening as we went to the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom of God. Now it's talking, of course, futuristic in his kingdom coming, but it's now also. However, going back to my dilemma in school, water flows downhill. It's hard to get water to go uphill. It's actually impossible for water to go uphill without an outside source. An outside power. And that is the problem with humanity. Humanity, we just flow downhill. We just do. That was my problem in school. I was going to go flow uphill. And I just float downhill. And I needed a power outside of myself. I didn't recognize it at that time. But that is why everyone must be born again. Born from above. From a power outside of ourselves. 
And that's what was missing in my school-age attempt to turn over a new leaf. I was still a subject to the devil. I was still under his constitution. Now, there were some things I could do. I could change something. I was not as bad as I possibly could be. But I was not a believer. I was not a Christian. I was not a follower of Jesus. And I was not righteous. That all changed when I was at a place where the gospel was preached many years later. And I was ripe for the picking at that point. At that point, I did and was born from above. When we repent and believe, we are translated or we're transferred from our our natural kingdom of darkness to the kingdom and realm of God's son, Jesus. There's that transfer that happens when their outside source comes in. That outside power comes into our lives. That power transfers us out of that kingdom that we were born into and into this other kingdom. Although we're still on earth, but we're no longer part of earth kingdom. That is absolutely vital for any understanding of the Christian life. I'll read some verses in uh, John chapter 3. You you can turn there if you wish. It's very familiar verses. John chapter 3, starting at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I wanted just to keep in mind how often eternal life or everlasting life appears in here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So saved is synonymous with everlasting life. And on on the end, the last verse of that chapter, verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him, rests on him. So we have life. Everlasting life is what is promised to all who believe. And this is not everlasting life in the future. This is life that extends into everlasting. There is a difference. Everlasting life is not heaven. It's life that you give, get now that extends everlasting. God is life. He is eternal. The devil and all who are associated with him are headed for death, but all who associate with God partake of God's life. Now, let's go back to the breastplate of righteousness. What is this righteousness that we have for our protection? I think I might encourage you to turn, yeah, turn to 1 John. 
There are some verses that would be better if you would see, we would see them ourselves with our own eyes. What is this righteousness? First John 1, starting at verse 7. I mean, we could read more, but we'll start at 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So how are we righteous? We are righteous by walking in the light, by fellowship with Jesus, by confessing our sin. So we can ask, what is the armor that protects us from the devil? What is it? By walking in the light? By fellowship with Jesus? By confessing our sin? That's part of the armor of righteousness that we put on. That is practical ways of having that righteousness on. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness. That means we are righteous. Then we also go to uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not for our sins only, but for the sins, also for the sins of the whole world. And these are promises. It's an exhortation. You know, he's saying, I write these things that you sin not. But then if you sin, this is what we have. And this is what he has done. This is how God operates. These are promises. We need to accept these promises by faith. Just like Abraham did. You see what, you know what talks about Abraham, talks about in the Old Testament, talks about in the New Testament, in Romans there, and maybe somewhere else. Abraham believed God. And that was accounted to him as righteousness. He was accounted as righteous because he took God at his word. And that's what we do in these verses here. We are not to sin. Take that as God's word. We are not to be morally uh, unrighteous. We're not to be uh, not upright and not virtuous and those things. But if we do not do that, then we have an advocate. An advocate is... Is someone, well, it's a, it's a priest. It could say a lawyer, but I more like the idea of a priest. <laughs> someone, because God is a judge, we have an advocate that will has, has actually taken care of that sin. And there is a propitiation. And, and so 
we are counted righteous when we believe God, even though we are not perfect. When we believe God and his word. And this this believing is not a dead faith as described in James. It's it's that active fellowship with Christ. It's that actually walking in the light. It's that active confession of sin. It's that active uh, avoiding sin. And then there's the, if there is a sin, then we have an advocate. We are considered righteous when we walk in that realm. There's no reason for us to ever be unrighteous, so to speak, unless we fail to believe God and to walk in that. A few others getting a little more on the other side now. We're talking a lot about the righteousness of Christ, but we're also talking about how how it does apply in our lives. We have a verse in First Peter. I mean, I looked at a lot of verses at which which is the best verse that we can fit in here. But I, I, I settled on this one. There would be a lot of verses. First Peter two twenty four. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That is that sacrifice that we. Now this is now the, the our response and the outcome that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. So we have that righteousness of Christ, but then we live in that righteousness. So we are not saved by intellectually believing in a courtroom deal that Jesus allegedly engaged in with the Father. When we are saved, we are transferred from one kingdom to another. And this is that newness of life that is spoken about in Romans 6. You're talking about that newness of life as participate in union with the Lord. So we are called to be disciples of Christ. Talking about our righteousness, talking about the transfer, talking about our belief in God. We are called to be disciples of Jesus and join Christ's rebellion against the ever-present powers that we live in. Now, are radicals rebels? I hadn't thought of it till now. A lot of radicals, and some ask the question, are we radicals? Radicals are no, an extremist. That's the word. I'm sorry. <laughs> extremists. Are extremists rebels? Quite a few extremists are. We are actually rebels. But we're rebels in the devil's owned um, territory, turf, realm. We follow Christ as rebels. We join Christ's rebellion against the ever-present powers that we live in. We are called as disciples to live counter-cultural lives that 
are persistently on guard, these lies, our lies that we live in. In other words, because we live in a constitution of heaven, but the constitution of earth is a totally different constitution, we are, by, by living by the constitution of heaven, we must live countercultural. There is no way around it. We are counter, we're going to be countercultural. And we must be on guard against the demonic seductive pool. And now you can put any kind of list in you want. Materialism, pride, status, nationalism, consumerism, immorality, and, and I'm sure we could expand that list. A host of evils that are a part of the very air that we breathe here. Instead, be on guard against that. Instead, we walk to the steps of a different drum. One that those who are not part of the kingdom do not and will not understand. It doesn't make sense to them. What are you hearing? Why are you stepping like that? You should be stepping like this and you're always one step off. Well, actually, you're going a different direction if you want to look at it, the analogy. Why? But why should it make sense to them? Some of the things we do may be understood, but there are some things that will not be understood. And that's where we face either persecution or ridicule or exclusion. That is called the cross. Jesus bore a cross because he was the, he was the, the pioneer in the, in the devil's kingdom. We are to follow him. We have a cross as well. We're in that same realm, but we have a leader. We have someone who, well, we have the spirit that walks with us. We have to have a paraclete. <clears throat> but that's the cross. We are to have a cross. If we're faithful to the heaven constitution, we will have a cross. Now, I have a quote here. Uh, I, I didn't actually know, I don't actually have a name to it, so I can't give it, but I have it here. As Christ exemplified the kingdom of God by the ways of his life and ministry and teaching and death, contrasted with the power-dominated kingdoms of the world, so his followers are called to advance the kingdom of God by living lives that sharply contrast with the kingdom of the world. Instead of trusting the power of worldly force, we are to trust a foolish power of the cross and thereby proclaim its wisdom to the gods of this age. Following the example of our captain, we are always overcoming evil with good, waiting for our master's return to finish setting up his kingdom. So there we have it. Believe in the Lord Jesus, receive his everlasting life, and walk in his footsteps in the same enemy territory that he walked in. And now, if we just, we, we were reading about the, the, the breastplate of righteousness out of Ephesians. And so walking in this way, we could go just through Ephesians chapter 4, to chapter 4 and 5, especially 4 and 5 and 6, that's right. Just children, obeying parents, honoring parents, 
is a part of the countercultural way of living. That is not cultural. That is not the way this world lives. And wives and husbands and employees and and immorality, and you can go all the things that are there in Ephesians. That's a countercultural way of living. It's a practical way. That is our shield of righteousness. We are to put that shield on, the righteousness that we receive from Christ and the righteousness that we receive as we, as we walk and follow him. And we're to do that with other people. So the devil is still a ferociously dangerous enemy, but we have protection from him. Even as we advance in his territory, under the guidance of our king, in truth, which is the first armor, and in righteousness, which is the second one, and I guess we'll look what the next ones are later. May God bless you. I just think this time, why don't we just have... If you can, let's kneel for prayer and let's just give our lives to the Lord and surrender to him. Yes, Lord, we are, as we again meditate on what you have done and uh, the vastness and the greatness and the, the, the difficulty you had in walking through the devil's kingdom alone, Lord, by yourself as a pioneer. And yet, Lord, you knew that was your will, and you set your face, and you made a way. And because you did, we have someone to follow. So, Lord, I just pray for each one of us. Help us to lift up our eyes, Lord, to recognize you as our king, as our pioneer, Lord, as our as a, yeah, salvation comes from you. It's from beginning to the end. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, we just pray you be with each one of us this week and help us to understand the realm that we live in. That's something that may, may not make sense. We understand, yes, that's why, because we live in the devil's realm and that there is a place for us to just follow you like you did, to accept that. And there's times, Lord, to speak. There's times to fight in the proper way. Lord, we pray you would guide us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.